you know, it, protection means a lot of different things. And it's more than just fire suppression. And oftentimes we spend a lot of time thinking about protection as, as just making sure that there's a, a fire truck when a fire starts. But protection also means making sure the fire doesn't start. It means fire prevention. It means working with the communities in those places. It means, it means doing everything we can do before, during, and after fire to safeguard those people in those places. And it, it, it's, not just, it's not just the act of suppressing the fire. Welcome to episode seven of Living with Fire. Today, you're gonna to hear from Annie Schmidt who works for the Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network, which is an organization that strives to help communities live more safely with wildfire. Annie is, as I mentioned later in this episode, kind of an all-star guest in terms of what I'd hope to accomplish with this podcast uh, during the first season. She lives in Leavenworth, Washington, and has committed her career to quite literally helping communities live with fire. In this episode, she offers a great perspective on helping communities build their fire resiliency, how fire prevention work should be prioritized just as much as fire suppression, and she also provides a few suggestions for other people who want to improve fire resiliency in their own communities. I think one of the most interesting parts of Annie's work is her commitment to bringing different voices to the table and empowering people with a variety of backgrounds to take better authority over their land, which you'll hear her talk about quite a bit in this episode. Just a quick fair warning, there are a few minor glitches in the audio on this episode uh, because both Annie and I were talking on Zoom with less than ideal Wi-Fi connections, so bear with me on that one. And finally, let's hear from Annie about some of the work that she's doing with the Fire Adapted Communities Network. Thanks for listening in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Annie Schmidt, and I'm a program specialist for the Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network. And I started working uh, in the woods, I would say, when I was 18. I took my first job for the Forest Service, so um, more than 20 years ago now. And I surveyed on a botany crew and got red carded to fight fire at the time and did that um, as needed, like so many of us did, right? Mm -hmm. And um, from there, I stayed with the Forest Service for several years. My degree is actually in environmental policy and planning. I worked as a public affairs officer and I also took a foray into the private sector in environmental uh, policy and permitting. And then that really brought me home. And when uh, my first daughter was born shortly after, I took a job for the Chumstick Wildfire Stewardship Coalition in Leavenworth, Washington. And we were working um, as a small nonprofit group, helping the residents of this area live better with wildland fire. And this idea that people can live better with fire was uh, important to me then. And it really has guided my, I guess, path, my career path since. So awesome. Um, yeah. So now um, from there, I helped stand up the Washington State Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network and now work as a program specialist for the national network. So helping communities just like the Chumstick all across the country. That's great. And I guess, why do you feel a sort of calling to this work? Um, I want to hear a little bit, I guess, a little bit more about your role with the fire adapted communities. Yeah. Well, so when I was, when I was little, really young, uh, 14 to be exact, 
in my hometown, there was a fire called the Rat and Hatchery Creek Fire. And it, it remains probably the single most powerful thing that I've ever seen. The night that fire came out of the canyon and roared up over Wedge Mountain, it was just stunning in its intensity. You could hear it, you could see the fire spot in front of itself and run back into the, the main body of the fire. And I think that night more than any other called to me in this work that working in the woods was important and that working with communities was important. Um, communities and fire are joined, I think it's really an important one. That's how my path got started. Awesome. And I'm going to, I'm going to fangirl you for a minute because you're kind of like the all-star guest for this podcast. In terms of, <laughs> I mean, it's called Living the Fire and you, um, you've, you've facilitated some policy and you've, you've worked with the Washington state legislator to actually like go like, you know, follow through on a lot of policy that, that actually makes a really huge difference uh, in Washington state. So if you could tell me a little bit about that house bill that you were a part of, that was kind of all about, you know, wildfire resiliency and community programming. So you, like I said, you're an all-star guest. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Well, thanks. Um, that considering the lineup you've had on here, I'm, uh, I'm just honored to have made the, have made the cut, but, um, <laughs> House Bill 2561 asked the Washington State Department of Natural Resources to answer three questions. How much unprotected land is there and what do we do about it? How do we better protect our communities with limited English proficiency? And how do we better work with communities to live with wildland fire? And so my job, I, I had nothing to do with getting that bill passed. There were a lot of really smart people working on crafting that bill and in the legislature driving it forward. My job was to facilitate the work of Washington State's Wildland Fire Advisory Committee as they thought to answer those questions. And it was a fascinating process because a lot of folks don't realize that there are, is even unprotected land in Washington State. This concept that there are acres of ground out there that are outside of a fire district and outside of federal jurisdiction and outside of state jurisdiction, meaning that if there's a fire, there's no one to answer the call was something that most people don't even realize. And in Washington state, we do have unprotected land. And then we had to decide as a committee, they had to work through the question of, well, protecting that land that's pretty isolated and sparse is expensive. How do we do it? Is it worth it? What's the best way to do it? And um, it was really a fascinating process to work through. And I was just grateful to be working with a, a really group, smart group of people on that committee to, to sift through those questions um, that are so essential to, to protecting every acre in Washington state. And, you know, it, protection means a lot of different things. And it's more than just fire suppression. And oftentimes we spend a lot of time thinking about protection as, as just making sure that there's a, a fire truck when a fire starts. But protection also means making sure the fire doesn't start. It means fire prevention. It means working with the communities in those places. It means, it means doing everything we can do before, during, and after fire to safeguard 
those people in those places. And it, it, it's not just, it's not just the act of suppressing the fire. And so really looking at what protection means and, and how we address those things was a key part of the 2561 report. Um, you know, and, and then we rolled from there into communities and, and how um, we can better support communities preparing for wildfire. And then also our limited English proficiency communities and what we can do um, to make sure that we're communicating in an appropriate way. And what does that look like to you? What are, what are how are we kind of, um, what are we lacking in those areas or what, what are we kind of working towards? Well, I, um, I think we're working towards a state um, where, and, and the Washington State Wildland Fire Strategic Plan lays it out pretty well um, in the vision, um, which is that, which is all Washington safely managing and living with wildland fire. This idea that, that every acre, every resident, every person is able to live with wildland fire is, is really important. And too often there are gaps in in living with fire and our ability to work in these places should not be constrained by our ability to communicate with each other. And so simple things like making sure that there are um, interpretation uh, services available, telephonic inter interpretation, particularly when there is a fire so that good information is not impeded by a language barrier is a really important step. And um, a lot of our public sector services are already doing this work. It's time for us to join them. And so it was, it was an honor to participate in that process and to see some of those steps get taken. And make no mistake, these are first steps. We have a long way to go to be, to be an inclusive and uh, adapted culture when it comes to fire. But the steps taken in 2561 were good first steps. That's awesome. And are there um, not, I guess, for sort of uh, limited English proficiency or even vulnerable communities, um, but also just communities as a whole, what are some sort of steps, uh, what are some things that you guys are doing uh, where you're actually involved in the community or like where you're actually like kind of embedding, like what, what kind of things are you guys doing in that realm? So there are communities throughout Washington and this country who are working to better live with wildland fire. And they are amazing, all of them. They are taking action before the fire. Things like making sure that uh, homes have defensible space, that they are hardened from fire. They have solid um, fire resistant roofing and preparing to make sure that they have their go bags and their evacuation kits. and they know which way is out of their community and they're preparing their businesses with business continuity planning. Uh, Ely, Minnesota is, um, there's an organization called Dovetail Partners in Ely, Minnesota. And earlier this year, they hosted a business resiliency workshop where they were talking to business owners about making sure that they could operate in a disaster and how they safeguard their operations. It was fantastic. Some of the work that our partners are doing in Colorado with home hardening, hardening is just fantastic. They're using neighborhood ambassadors, you know, citizens to go out and talk to their neighbors about how to better 
live with fire, how to prepare their neighborhood, how to evacuate from their neighborhood. It's just outstanding. And, and that work happens throughout what we would think of as the fire cycle. So there's before the fire, you know, and that's an important part of this work in communities. And then there's daring the fire, which as, as folks who fight fire, um, mo most people kind of have a basic sense of what that looks like. But there's also this, this next bucket of after the fire work. And we see folks like the Okanagan Long-Term Recovery Group in North Central Washington that have helped their community rebuild after the 2014 and 2015 fires. And now they're turning their attention, not just like to recovery, but also how do we prepare for the next fire? So there are just, there's examples all over the place of communities that are, are doing the hard but important work to connect with each other and to connect with their residents and work from the ground up to create a world where we are capable of withstanding a natural event, fire, in a way that minimizes the losses that we experience. Fantastic. Um, and like, what would you kind of suggest to these practitioners or to these community organizers who are um, who are doing this work in other areas or in places that maybe don't have that that foundation in place quite yet? Get started. <laughs> you, <Okay. there's, laughs> you, it's isn't this isn't it's not talking to one another is good work. And it's work that anyone can do. We often think that there's a magic solution to our wildfire problems, and and there isn't. Um, there's not there's not one solution. And so, don't sit at home and think to yourself, "I don't know the right answer, so therefore I can do nothing." We should sit at home and think. I don't know the right answer. Maybe I should go talk to some people and see what we have that we could apply to this problem. And so you unity and start on this pathway simply by asking yourself, how do I, how could I do better the next time a fire came here? How could my neighbors do better? How could we change our outcomes? What, how can we reduce our loss? Just ask the question and start talking to people because that action is the single most powerful thing that we can start to do to change the conversation around fire because we can do things. We have choices and we have opportunities and we don't have to wait for someone to tell us how this work should happen. In what ways can we like kind of better communicate about fire? You know, it's got this list, this negative connotation right now. And I think a big part of these initiatives being successful is kind of changing changing the way we think about it and changing the, the fact that it's it's got this negative sort of umbrella over it right now or this negative connotation. So yeah. in your work, kind of what do you do in that realm in terms of changing changing the culture, changing the way we think about it? Well, too often, I think we look at fire as something that is owned and managed by the, the agencies, right? That that whether it's a local fire district or a state fire management agency or a federal fire agency, that that fire belongs to them. Um, it's their job to suppress it. And, you know, it's, I guess it's our job to prevent it is sort of the traditional narrative and away we go. And that's really problematic for a whole bunch of different reasons. Fire, fire isn't owned, just like you can't own the rain, you can't own the snow. There's no monopoly on who manages fire. And and we all have a role 
in fire ownership and and we should share the governance of fire and so we have to start thinking how can we elevate the community voices to be equal partners in this conversation? How can we empower communities by building capacity at the local level to start to connect um, to the agencies to say, hey, this is the, we need a voice in this. We, we have a stake in this and fire and land. This is our, this is our place. This relationship is ours. And so, so reframing this conversation um, immediately away from one where fire is owned, um, not by the people, but by the agencies is, is tremendously important. And, you know, there are some fantastic people who I know you've had as guests who spend a lot of time talking about this. Jeremy Bailey is one. Uh, Lania Quinn Davidson is another. You know, these are fantastic folks working to change this narrative. And, and you know, to those names, you can look at some of our indigenous partners, the Karuk tribe um, in California does some amazing work and they they do a really lovely job of talking about the role of traditional ecological knowledge and fire ownership. And so I just think we have to start acknowledging that this is not, you know, the first step to change is just saying, okay, this is not how fire should be owned. Um, you know, from there, I think we have to look at our opportunities and, and it's going to rain legislation uh, dealing with fire in the next 12 to 18 months. It will pour from the heavens. And the, the traditional approach here is to double down on the strategies that we have used previously. Things like more air support and, and more crews and more suppression resources. And I, I, there's a place for that. I uh, am a proud volunteer firefighter, uh, still, still like serving my community in that capacity. And there is a role for suppression. And I am not here to say that there never will be. However, <laughs> we, we need to think long and hard about whether we want to proliferate uh, that approach or whether we want to siphon off just a smidge, just a fraction, just a drop in the proverbial bucket of those resources and apply it to empowering our communities because we can, we can change this narrative by raising up the voices on the ground. The right answer so often comes the closest to the land. And, and so that's where these communities are. Let's, let's, let's invest in them, you know, simple things like coordination capacity so that, so that a one community member can raise their hand and say, okay, I need the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources. I need the Forest Service. I need the neighbors. I need all the neighbors. I, I need the environmental community. I need the non-government. They can start to convene and have these hard conversations about governance and ownership and suppression and how we cross boundaries effectively, right? And so that coordinating capacity is wildly important. And it's also cheap compared to suppression resources. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, you can fund entire statewide learning networks for the same cost as one air tanker on one fire for one day. And you can fund that whole network for a year. So these are, I mean, we are not talking about, you know, lots of zeros here. I mean, we're talking about zeros, but we're not talking about the same number of zeros that come in our suppression bill. Um, and, and it can elevate communities 
so that they can take stock of where they are and better, you know, better change their outcomes. We can do this work. We just have to start approaching it from the bottom up. Now you have me on my soapbox. So we're going now. That is what I love. <laughs> um, yeah, get people in their soapbox as quick as possible. <laughs> That's the objective. <laughs> Um, and what does this sort of look like in your community, um, you know, on the ground in Leavenworth or in, um, in that area? What is this, what is this looking like, I guess, personally? Yeah, well, I, uh, I am fortunate to live in a place that has had residents leading this charge for a long time. One of the people that I learned the most from is a man named Ross Frank, and he is a longtime fire commissioner here, a landowner in the Leavenworth area. Um, and he, he taught me a lot of lessons about relentless persistence and getting it done on the ground and how important the grassroots movement for change really can be. And so, you know, in Leavenworth, it was people like Ross and the folks who invested in the Chumstick Wildfire Stewardship Coalition. They invested their time, countless hours of meetings. They invested their energy. Um, and they really started to change the, the narrative about fire here. And they didn't do it, they didn't do it alone. They reached out. They reached out to landowners, they reached out to the Forest Service have a great relationship with the Anachi River Ranger District. And they, they started to say, where do we put fuels treatments? How can we support prescribed fire? How can we support landowner preparedness? How can we leverage um, private lands cost your dollars so that the, the financial burden that's borne in some of these rural places to complete this work is eased a little bit to create a more comprehensive solution. And so, you know, watching that group evolve over the years, I left them in 2014 or 2015, um, has just been a pleasure to see them sort of progress and, and change. And I'm still learning from the work that they're doing here all the time because I am pretty inspired by their efforts. One thing that I think they're starting to tackle here in the Leavenworth area, there's there's some drum beats um, that I hope will continue is, is starting to plan for long-term recovery. And I think this is this is a harder scenario for a lot of communities to tackle. And there are some that are doing a fantastic job. I should say, give a shout out to Bend, Oregon, um, Haley Rich and the crew at um, Deschutes County Sheriff's Office is undertaking a phenomenal long-term planning effort in advance of fire. And so we're trying to learn what we can from them. But in our area, I'd like to see that continue. And that is this idea that communities can prepare for fire impacts before the fire ever comes. They can say, if we were to experience widespread loss here, and we might, the wrong fire on the wrong day can, can create a lot of loss pretty fast. How would we recover from that? Who would need to be at the table? What relationships need to be in place? What partnerships do we need to develop now, right now, before our backs are against the wall? And so that is, to me, the next step in the evolution for my community. And I, I kind of, now I'm, I'm outing myself as waiting for them to just ask for, for um, some participation in that. So 
thanks for that. Um, but I, I am sort of just waiting <laughs> for, for that to become um, the next step because I'm, I'm pretty interested in that. And I, I really do hope for my community that that will be the next step. I think it's tremendously important. Living with Fire podcast is sponsored by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that I've spent more time with a Mystery Ranch pack than I have with my family and friends over the last four summers. Every crew I've worked on has used Mystery Ranch's packs, and I've seen them get tossed, stepped on, covered in retardant, and used as a pillow probably more times than I'd like to admit. But through it all, I've never seen so much as a zipper break on one of their packs. But Mystery Ranch doesn't just make fire packs. They've also got packs for hunting, backpacking, climbing, and skiing. I personally love their women's backcountry ski pack, which is low profile, sized for women, and for me has been perfect for resort laps on high avalanche danger days at Mount Baker or for long day trips in the backcountry. After a whole lot of time spent with a Mystery Ranch pack on, I can confidently say that their products are not only durable and comfortable, but some of the best backpacks in the industry, whether you're carrying a fire shelter, an elk quarter, or your avalanche gear. Learn more and check out their lineup of great products at mysteryranch.com. You know, I think it's really important to just recognize that these are these are super complicated problems. The wildfire problem is not something that can be solved with a single solution. And it's really important that we don't forget to continue to look around and say, who else should be at this table as we're starting to solve these problems? And who else throughout this country has experienced something like this before. And this is where the Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network for me has been such a powerful force because this idea that we can learn from others who've walked ahead of us on this path and held the light for those that come behind, I think is just fantastically important. And watching communities carve out a path toward adaptation, man, they're working hard, this is hard work. And our burdens are eased when we can work together. And so this idea that this network can link practitioners and we can you know, share our failures, be brave enough to say this didn't work and, and be loud when something worked really well, I think is just tremendously important. And so, um, and it highlights a diversity of approaches. The more we can do, um, to promote what works in a place, a specific place in the ground level, the better off we're gonna be. And so I just I just think if anyone doesn't read the Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network blog, they should because it's awesome. Uh, and you get to hear from communities across the country, you know, like those that I've mentioned, like Bend and Ely and you know, Flagstaff, Arizona, and Ashland, Oregon, and Washington, which I'm terribly partial to living here in, in beautiful North Central Washington. But, you know, you get to, you get to hear their stories and, and get to know what they're trying. And it may help you if you're the one listening at home thinking, what do I do? It may help you just get started. And so that's, there's no reason to wait in this work. It's not gonna get easier the longer we wait. So yeah, get started. A huge thanks to Annie for coming on the show and getting on her soapbox about how we can all learn to better live with fire. Just a heads up that we only have a few more episodes of season one left, but if you have a suggestion for a future episode, please don't hesitate to reach out. 
You can reach out on Instagram or Twitter or at livingwithfirepodcast.com. I'd also love it if you could continue sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And if you really like what you hear, consider subscribing and maybe even rating Living With Fire on Apple Podcasts. All right, enough self-promotion for now. I'm signing off for this week and hope to catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.